We're beginning the next section of the book of Romans, uh, which is Romans chapter 9 through 11. Let's pray. I know I need it. And so we'll go from there and look at the scripture this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for coming to us by your spirit in your word. And we humbly ask that your spirit would be our teacher would open our minds and illumine our hearts to show us the beauties and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you are able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Friends, hear the very Word of the Lord. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises." To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love the story, I don't know if I've shared it with you before, of how Evie came to faith of what God used in her life to open her heart to the love and grace of Christ. She was eight years old in the third grade, and she was one of those that they used to call a Sunday school drop-off. And by that, I mean her mother used to drop her off at the Methodist church that was just down the road uh, from her childhood home, the church where we also got married. Her third grade Sunday school teacher was an elderly woman by the name of Mrs. Rogers. And Mrs. Rogers absolutely loved her Sunday school class. She poured her heart and her soul, she poured her very life into that class. She did more than just gather with the children on Sunday mornings. She would have this time once a year where she would invite all of the students from her class over to her and her husband's home for a fancy sit-down dinner. Now, it'd be one thing if they came over and ordered a pizza. That would be great in and of itself. But no, she got the cloth, you know, the tablecloth. We're talking not just the, you know, dollar store one. We're talking the real McCoy here. The cloth napkins, I mean, the kind you have to put on your lap. Not the way I do it when I'm eating my chicken wings, you know, where you put it in your, you know, kind of like a bib. We're talking the fancy tea up, you know, pinky up with the tea type of stuff. I mean, she went fine china. I remember Evie first telling me this story, saying, I couldn't believe to what lengths Mrs. Rogers would go to to show us such care and love and grace and generosity. And Evie says that it was after that dinner with Mrs. Rogers that she embraced the grace and love of Christ, that she was able to experience and see in Mrs. Rogers, have reflected for her and see, in a sense, this kind of incarnational embodiment of the love of Christ that drew her to the faith. In other words, God used the love and the passion and the hospitality and the generosity of Mrs. Rogers 
to communicate to Evie in her heart a far better love and passion, the love and passion of Christ. In the same way, as we return to our study of the book of Romans this morning, and we look at just these first five verses of chapter 9, this introductory uh, passage to the major section that we're going to spend the next few months looking at, Romans chapters 9 through 11, we see the Apostle Paul and his incredible love for his non-believing Jewish kinsmen. We see his incredible love reflecting the love of Christ to them. And we see that in this text we're going to explore the love of not some stoic theologian, but the love of an evangelist, the love of a missionary. And this text shows us this kind of love in three simple movements. We will look at the fact that love is passionate, love is sacrificial, and love is surprising. Love is passionate, love is sacrificial, and love is surprising. The first movement is love is passionate. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And Paul immediately says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Okay, you'd think that'd be enough right there, right? No, he keeps going. He says, I'm not lying. I mean, I'm reading this and I'm reading this, you know. One of the things I do when I prepare a sermon is I probably read through the text in English, even before I go back and look at the original language, I'm reading the entire text over and over and over again. And this thought kind of kept coming to my mind, Paul, who thinks you're lying? Why are you so urgent? Almost sound defensive here. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Let me tell you again, I'm not lying. No, I really mean it. My conscience is bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Wow, he wants to emphasize something. What does he want to emphasize? He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So much for the cold and stoic theologian, huh? Here he is saying, I have this unbelievable sadness. I'm experiencing sorrow and anguish, pain stabbing through my heart because of the unbelief, the rejection of the gospel that comes from my Jewish brothers and sisters. Now let me pause and review for a second how Romans 9 through 11 fits into the overflow of the letter because many mistakenly view Romans 9 through 11 as kind of this pause, this bracket, this appendix. They kind of look at it, you read through commentaries and stuff like that and they kind of go, look, we've gone to the Mount Everest of the end of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation, for I am convinced that neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, powers, the present, not the future, nor anything else in all creation. Can you feel it? I mean, celebrating the grace and the love and the security and the victory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 9, and they kind of go, wait a second, that has nothing to do with the overall letter. Well, let me tell you, that couldn't be further from the truth. Romans chapter 9 to 11 is not a bracket. It's not an epilogue. It's not an appendix talking about a different subject of the letter. It is absolutely essential to the overall message of the letter. And the overall message of the letter is an exposition of the gospel of God, how the sovereign God has fulfilled his redemptive purposes in history, in Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, the implication 
is what is a proper Christian attitude towards those who do not embrace Jesus as Messiah? And he says, now we begin to find, well, not an easy answer, and some would say not an answer in the satisfying sense at all, but rather a posture, a way of thinking, a way of thinking that's rooted in a way of praying, and a way of praying that is rooted in love and grief. We learn here a proper attitude towards those who do not believe. Paul demonstrates for us that love begins with true passion, that love is passionate, and it begins with authentic caring. Again, verse 1, he emphasizes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. It's kind of like, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm not lying. Maybe you didn't hear me again. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. There's even passion in his insistence on truth, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, let me ask you this question. Let's do a little soul searching here for a second. Is that how you feel towards your non-Christian family, neighbors, and friends? Can you say to them, if you were writing a letter to them, can you say to them, I'm telling you the truth. No, I'm not lying. Wait a second. Really believe me. My conscience bears with me. I'm up night after night, unceasing sadness, unceasing pain, unceasing anguish, because I have great sorrow in my heart for you. Or do you just kind of write them off, basically go, well, if they're elect, that's great, you know, but I don't know if they're elect. I can't, you know, if not, what can I do anyway? Now, let me tell you, election's a major, major part of Romans chapter 9. We're going to get to it. We're going to dive into some deep theology in the weeks to come. But we need to understand something. Election is absolutely true, and Paul will spend a great deal of time teaching and elaborating on its reality and the nature of election in these chapters. But the kind of attitude, and I think this is why he even begins the chapter this way, the kind of laissez-faire, well, if they're elect, great. If not, that's fine. Paul can't stomach. He has great sorrow. The sadness of tone is here. As a matter of fact, looking at how it fits in with the overall message and context of the letter, the beginning of this section, chapters, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, forms, and you know this is like my favorite word of the last couple months, an inclusio, remember that word? Meaning a bracket with the very end of the section, chapter 11, verses 33 and 36. And it's because of the complete, the end of the section, chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, is a complete opposite or antithesis in tone to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 begins with this kind of grief and passion and sadness in tone. He works through the issue, the theological issue, which leads him at the end of this section, the end of chapter 11, with a depth of praise for this mysterious God where he sings doxologically, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Now do you hear the contrast between that? And I am in great sorrow 
and great anguish of heart because of my kinsmen, my Jewish brothers and sisters. See, what is going on? How does this fit into the overall flow of the letter? Well, the overall theme of the letter is found in the very beginning, so let's do a brief review of the book of Romans. See, where have we come? How have we gotten from chapter 1 all the way up? I'm going to give you a two-minute review of the book of Romans. The theme of the letter was in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So he's about to exposit and make clear the gospel of God. He says, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. So the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So he's going to be revealing the righteousness of God as he exposits the gospel through this letter. So where does he begin? Chapter 1, verse 18, the first major section goes from 118 to 320. And if I could paraphrase it, it's basically all of humanity in the same boat. Jews and Gentiles alike need the gospel. In other words, Jews and Gentiles alike which is another way of saying every human being is under the power and curse of sin, so that neither the possession of the law nor circumcision, nothing can affect bringing salvation. Everyone needs the gospel, which brings him to the next major section of the book. Chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 25, he talks about the great doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, how righteousness can be obtained, again, by all peoples, but in the same way. Through faith in Jesus Christ and in his, excuse me, atoning work. And then from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 39, Paul describes that the blessings ascribed to Israel in the Old Testament are ascribed to the church, which all of this then raises a very important theological question, and that is, have the promises simply been transferred to the church, and is ethnic Israel sort of just left by the wayside? Are they just kind of left outside? Has the church simply replaced Israel, which is a doctrine that's been known in the history of the church as supersessionism or replacement theology? Now, let me give you the very simple and direct answer to that question. You all listening? Can you say it with me quickly here? No. We do not believe in supersessionism. We do not believe in replacement theology. Sometimes, now why am I emphasizing it like that? Because sometimes the church, in the history of the church, and in the history of theology, again, let me be blunt, we've gotten it quite wrong. And it's led to some horrific things, again, in the history. It certainly does not reflect the attitude and, quite frankly, the passionate love of the Apostle Paul, who is certainly reflecting the love of his Savior. So he begins with his first point, that love is passionate, because all the theology that is coming next, and it is coming, just be paid. You'll leave today a little unsatisfied if you want a deep theology. But what you're getting is kind of the grounding of all of this. And what is he grounding it? He is grounding it in passionate love. That's the first point. 
I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth in Christ. My heart is in great sorrow and sadness and unceasing anguish because my fellow Jewish people do not believe. But next he shows us, look with me at verse 3, and he shows us the second thing is love is sacrificial. Now, you would have thought verses 1 and 2 went far enough. Paul's going to push the envelope even more because he says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, again, I had to read that a lot of times this week to kind of go, maybe I'm missing something here. Paul, you really praying that? Now, you know God's not going to answer that prayer by yes, but is that really your heart there? For I could wish that myself were accursed. Do you know what he's praying there? He is actually praying that he himself would be under the curse of God. Do you know what that means? He's praying. Now, I want to know, when was the last time you prayed this way for your non-Christian family, friends, and neighbors? I'm sure you're down on your knees every night like I am. And we're praying every night, Lord, here's my non-Christian family members, my non-Christian friends, my non-Christian neighbors, and I pray that if you bring them to yourself, may I go to hell. Yeah, right. (laughs) I just told you when the last time I prayed that was. When was the last time you prayed like that? Yet that's Paul's prayer. Do you understand that the word curse there is a theological term? He's not just saying, God, would you just punish me a little bit and be a little unhappy with me, a little displeasure with me for the sake? No, he is saying, may I? And the Greek word there is actually the word anathema. May I be under your sentence of eschatological judgment for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What Paul's doing there is he is reflecting the nature of love, which is sacrificial, and he's reflecting what a pastor, a missionary, a prophet, an evangelist, a Christian does. He's actually alluding and recalling the Old Testament history of Moses after the people of God sinned in the episode of the golden calf. We read in Exodus chapter 32, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. Now, there's no denial there. He's confronting them. You've sinned a great sin. You rejected the living God, and you've made for yourself an idol, a golden calf. And he says, Now I'm going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So then he goes up and he returns to the Lord and said, so here's Moses' prayer. He says, alas, Lord, this people has sinned a great sin. Again, no denial. He says, they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Whoa. When was the last time you sacrificed yourself like that for the sake of somebody else? See, let's face it. We all like to say, oh, we love well. We're so friendly. We love... Can we hold ourselves up to the scripture rather than trying to make ourselves feel better for a second? Because no matter how much I try to make myself feel better, I'm kind of going, I don't love like that. If that's the standard, I'm in trouble. I don't know about you, but at least I'm in trouble because I'm going, my love life doesn't look like that. My love life is not that sacrificial. 
How sacrificial is your life, love life? How willing are you to lay down your life and sacrifice? What was the last sacrifice you did for the sake of loving others? And Paul is saying, remember, these are the opening verses. He's saying, this must govern our interpretation for every difficult thing I'm about to say. That's going to be hard for some of you to take. He's saying, I want you to bathe it, envelope it, and govern it with my heart that is filled with love for my people. So much love that I wish I was cut off. I wish I was accursed for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Last, the final movement, verses 4 and 5. Love is surprising. He goes on, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and verse 5, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Verse 4 lists the privileges given to the people. And then he comes, looking at all these privileges, leads to the question, wait a second. And this is the real question of not just these verses, but of chapters 9 through 11. He's saying, look at this, if these really do belong to Israel, if he has all these great promises in the past, promising them also this glorious future, here's what chapters 9 through 11 is about. And fundamentally... It's not about Israel. They're a crucial part of it. But fundamentally, the main issue and the main question of these chapters is, has God's word failed? Is God faithful? See, in other words, he is asking these are legitimate questions to which the answer is surprising. Because love is surprising, which is why eventually in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, it leads to the depth of the doxological praise extolling this mysterious God. See, Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on the book of Romans says, Paul is grieving, and we need to feel the depths of his pain and the depths of his grief. Paul is grieving because ethnic Israel has been the beneficiary of God's goodness in the past and was promised a glorious future. Yet these promises have not come to pass. And thus they call into question God's righteousness. Remember what the entire book of Romans is about? The revelation of God's righteousness. Schreiner writes, To see these privileges as passed on to the church badly misconstrues Paul's argument since his grief is due to the promises made to ethnic Israel. But what Paul says in verse 5 is that it is from their race, according to the flesh. In other words, Jesus' human descent is the Christ who is God over all. Jesus himself is from ethnic Israel. His human descent is Jewish, which is quite significant. This means God's redemptive love is surprising. It's different than what was expected. We don't receive all the answers here. That's for the rest of the overall section of Romans 9. Don't you love it in a sermon where the preacher says you have to be patient? I'm sure we're excited about that. Maybe it'll bring you back next week. But what we do see is that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. That Christ is the fulfillment of and the revelation of 
of God's righteousness, even if it was in a surprising and unexpected way. See, he is the reality of what a passionate love looks like. He is the one who the Old Testament, through the prophet Zephaniah, see, look at a passionate love. He says, he is a mighty God who is mighty to save. He will quiet you with his love. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. That's a surprising love. I don't know about you, but I'd be shocked if any human being sung over me with loud songs. That's not what I expect. And yet this is saying the God of the universe, the God of the universe had great sorrow that I was alienated from him and that you were alienated from him, had great sorrow and anguish of heart that we were separated from him, which led him to great sacrifice, the great sacrifice of the cross. Whereas Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he experienced this kind of sacrifice and anguish of heart that led him to the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat drops of blood in anguish for you and I. See, we see in Christ the ultimate sacrifice, going to the cross, laying down his glory, and dying for what is truly not a pretty people. And his love, the fact that he loves a people like ourselves, is immensely surprising. See, if we would get real for a second, if we begin to understand the gospel, one of the very first things that should come to our hearts and our minds is shocking. How could a God like this love a people like us? We ought to be experiencing gospel astonishment that the God who, according to this text, who is over all, Above all, the sovereign God would bend so low, would stoop so far down to reach down and enter into our lives and die for us and be raised for us so that we would never be apart, so that we could live with him forever, so that we could be connected to him and receive this kind of love. See, let me ask you this question. Are you continually being astonished? by the gospel, that it's shocking your heart that a God like this could love you. Let's go to the table and taste and see that he is good.